Hello, Duncan Green here with Development Nutshell, the uh, weekly roundup of blogs on From Poverty to Power. Um, I had an interesting week this week. I think a few sort of, uh, we, we pushed the boundaries a bit. Um, we had a few quite unusual topics, masculinity, the Balkans, um, and uh, the numbers of people reading it suggest that people like it. So that was all very encouraging. But we started off with a fairly traditional links I liked, um, which is the kind of, you know, things I've been circulating on social media, a few funnies. Um, two things I'd pick out this week. One is um, a really good paper by the International Broadcasting Trust on uh, advice to NGOs, international NGOs and others, for example, academics, thinking of getting into the podcast business. So there are millions and millions of podcasts now. Um, we're adding to them. We're going to start up some new ones on From Poverty to Power and on our Power Shifts kind of um, uh, project. Um, <clears throat> this is a really good survey, really good nuts and bolts, what you need to do, you know, things to think about, how to edit them, how to promote them, some good examples from different places. We got some new ideas. I got some new ideas from reading it for what we could do on from uh, on this blog and this podcast. So just um, very helpful paper there. So if you are interested in dipping a toe in the waters of podcasts, I recommend this paper. Um, also, um, the Mumbai police have just a really sweet, funny video. They they decided to try and do something about people just sitting in traffic jams, mindlessly honking their horns, which is something I think we can all get behind. Um, and they decided to basically use behavioural sort of nudges to do it. Now, the, the, the traffic lights in Mumbai have a kind of uh, uh, a counter which counts down to when the... Um, uh, lights are going to turn from red to green and so what they did was they set up next to that a sound sensor and as soon as the volume of honking goes above a certain level I think it was 85 decibels it triggers the counter to go back to 90 so that they have to wait another 90 seconds for it to turn green and they've got a great video of, of drivers looking totally baffled and blowing their horns and then starting to tell each other what was going on and why why the lights weren't turning green and surprise surprise very quickly people stopped honking their horns so a wonderful exercise i don't quite understand how it works in that are all the lights red in all directions in which case no traffic is moving until they stop blowing their horns or does it just mean one particular line of traffic gets stuck and the other the lights in the other direction turn green? There's lots of things I would need to know about this, but it was just a really funny video and I recommend it. Second, we had uh, Wanguiwa Kamonji from Kenya, who describes herself in her bio as an independent researcher, dancer, writer and facilitator centering Africa, ancestrality and the earth in her work. Wow, and that's that's quite a bio. Um her piece is about uh, women in Kenya rebuilding resilience amidst an eco-cultural crisis, and in particular focusing on the role of women in recovering indigenous seeds in response to increased drought conditions and climate change. Um, and the, the interesting point about this blog is that it's not just about seeds. You can have very sort of quite a technical discussion about seed varieties and so on. But she looks at the rituals and relationships which go around seeds both between people and between people and the land and the role of women in particular in sort of maintaining and developing those rituals and relationships and advocating for a return to eating traditional foods like millet rather than um, the, the foods like maize that have come in in much greater amounts in the last few decades. 
Next up, we had Nick Galasso from Oxfam America with a piece on trying to understand where the far right is coming from, not just in the US, but globally, on issues of gender and masculinity. Um, and I think it was a, I found it a really insightful piece. I mean, first up, you know, what is their problem with gender? The, the people from Viktor Orban in Hungary to all over the place, far right people hate gender studies, hate the whole language of gender as a sort of socially constructed entity. Um, and he, he argues that that's because it's, it's seen, they see it as a threat to their understanding of the traditional family and the naturalness of the division of labour between men and women. Um, and that that traditional family kind of idea is the basis for a lot of what follows in terms of othering other groups and, um, you know, uh, identifying people as threats and enemies and people we we don't like and so it's a kind of them and us the them and us the whole them and us distinction starts with the traditional family but then he gets on to an element of gender that the far right just loves which is masculinity they love talking about masculinity and what it is to be a man um, and Nick summarizes what sounds like a really good paper from Alan Gregg I haven't read it but uh, it sounds very good and Greg identifies three broad narratives within that far-right um, uh, discussion of masculinity. First is dangerous men. So these are, you know, this is a racialized narrative which is saying these foreign men are coming in and threatening us. And, you know, the classic example of um, Donald Trump speaking in the um, uh, 2016 campaign, I think it was, about, you know, Mexicans being rapists coming over here and endangering our women. Um so that sort of dangerous man uh, is one of the three narratives. The second one is male exclusion. This is a sort of massive self-pity thing of um, men being sort of shut out of jobs and excluded by uh, the gender, you know, by, by the women's movement and um, you know, push for men's rights. And what about men? And somebody actually came on the blog to comment on Nick's post saying exactly that, kind of illustrating that particular narrative. Um, and the third one is an altogether nastier one, which is misogynistic masculinities. Uh, there's this, uh, Nick used the word, the manosphere, which I haven't heard of, heard of before, but I will definitely use, which he describes as a cesspool of the internet where men go to basically whip up hatred against women, against uh, lesbians, against anybody who's different from their understanding of, of, of the norm. Um, so quite an interesting distinction. Nick doesn't go into... So what? What should NGOs or campaigners or activists do about this? I think that's another post. He gives a, a paragraph of ideas, but basically this is the this is a quite nice diagnosis. It's like a yeah, description of the problem. Thinking about solutions to the problem is another piece. Next up, we had um, Adam Ferizage, who describes himself as a Balkan essayist. First one of those we've had on From Poverty to Power. Um, and he makes the absolutely fair, he starts with the absolutely fair point that yeah, any discussion of the Balkans is largely missing from the aid and development debate. Um, and he wants to talk about and talks about um, Islamophobia in the Balkans, in particular um, around Albanians. And he says that there's been a, for the last 200 years, there's been a debate about whether Albanians are truly European, which is a thinly veiled discussion about whether it's possible to be European and Muslim. Um, and he updates this with a discussion of what's gone on in Kosovo. 
since the war with Serbia ended in 1999, when, according to him, there has been a steady process of erasing Kosovar Albanian Muslimness. Um, And that has come through the work of NGOs and of the European Union in, in Kosovo, rebuilding in a way that is almost entirely blind to Islamophobia. So quite a subtle piece, uh, interesting piece, I think. Final, final uh, post of the week was on something I've been involved with quite a lot over the last few years, which is um, a research program called the Action for Empowerment and Accountability. And this is one of those big research consortia with lots of different groups from different countries working together to try and understand empowerment and accountability in dangerous and messy places, those places which are now called fragile violence and conflict-affected settings. Um, the five case study countries for, uh, for this programme are Egypt, Mozambique, Myanmar, Nigeria and Pakistan, although I've also worked in Tanzania and elsewhere on this. Um, and what they've done is pull together 11 recommendations from their first three years of research for donors and others working in these places. And it's only six pages. It's really good. It's a really good synthesis. But I synthesized the synthesis. Don't try saying that too fast. Um, and, uh, and, and went through the 11 recommendations because I think they're all really interesting. So the first one is think carefully about language. The language you use in more stable, safe places may not work, may, may just create risk. Don't say collective action. It may be better to just say working together. It sounds less threatening that kind of thing. Um, So think about the language and how people perceive the language. Second, what do you do with your logo? You know, donors love to badge their aid. They want a big Diffid or a big Oxfam um, logo on the project. These billboards you see around the world with strewn with uh, aid agency logos. In some cases, those create extra risks for local partners. Governments or opponents can say, look, they're being, you know, they're being used by foreigners. In other cases, the partners want logos on it because it gives them an element of security saying, look, we've got powerful friends, don't mess with us. So you need to find out, you need to consult with partners and find out whether they want a logo heavy or a logo light approach. Um, Beware accusations of spying. This was the one that sort of was most surprising to me that if you do go for the low profile approach, and you're going in and asking people to send you reports about what's going on, the you know the internal power analysis, the political economy analysis, that is very easy to portray as espionage. So do be aware that you may be attacked, or your partners, more importantly, may be attacked and accused of spying. Think about that in terms of how you manage appearances and how you avoid those accusations. Given what I've just said, there are you know, constantly shifting and unpredictable risks. It's no good coming in as the outsider and saying, right, I'm going to do a risk analysis. I'm going to work out you know, what the risks are over the next year. You can only really do that with an in, by putting local partners right at the heart of it, not just a tokenistic consultation, but actually start with them and say, OK, let's talk about risks. The example they give in the paper is just having a meeting in, the, in one country was completely safe one year by the time the time came around to do it again the following year that particular venue was really dangerous and the partners got into trouble because they hadn't consulted properly on uh, on what what the risk where the risks lay so things as simple as where you hold a meeting can entail risk 
Next point was sometimes the indirect approach to empowerment and accountability is more effective than meeting it head on. The example I give is bring back our girls where a focus on something where it's easy to get consensus, you know, those girls should not have been kidnapped, we need to get them back, morphed into a wider, quite interesting discussion on the issue of safety of girls at school in general in Nigeria. Um, so you can actually sometimes get further by going indirect rather than head on. Next point, in a situation where things are so volatile and where any organisation or institution runs risks of being sort of suppressed, of getting into trouble or of just falling apart, it may well be better to support coalitions than support individual organisations. So you spread your risk, you think about wider units than just individual organisations. Next point, a tricky one. Donors love to talk about scale. They look at each other in meetings and say, does this scale? Does this go to scale? And in a way, that's sensible because you want things to you know, benefit as many people as possible. In these fragile and conflict-affected settings, scale may be stupid. Scale increases visibility. Scale makes you more noticeable. Maybe doing lots of small things below the radar is actually the best way to proceed. So be ready to abandon your commitment to scaling everything. Uh, if you if you want to work in these places. Similarly, another thing that needs to be adapted is indicators. So, you know, I think you have to accept these days that we need to monitor and try and under, understand the impact of what we do. And that means measuring something, right? Uh, it means an indicator of some kind, qualitative, quantitative, whatever, whatever it is. And the point that uh, the paper is making is that those indicators depend on the context and may be different in these fragile and conflict places. For example, in a situation where things are being shut down, where people are being suppressed, the mere act of survival may be a very positive indicator here, where elsewhere it wouldn't count for very much. Or the confidence to speak when pri previously you've been too terrified to speak and say anything is a really positive gain in terms of development, of freedoms to be and to do. So maybe we should be measuring that and just saying that is a gain, that is a win. doesn't matter whether speaking achieves anything. The mere act of speaking is in itself an intrinsic step forward. Next point, be adaptive. You know, the, the, whatever you start doing is going to get altered uh, and you need to be ready to um, have the feedback in place to notice when things are changing and to adapt your program. I've written about this endlessly on adaptive management, doing development differently, thinking, working politically. So I'm not going to rehearse all the arguments. But yes, it makes sense in these messy places, just as it does in many other places. Next point. Sunshine is not always the best disinfectant. I have a real problem with this cliche in that I don't think sunshine's ever a very good disinfectant. I would rather use disinfectant. But um, in this particular case, it's extra true because what they mean is Doing name and shame, you know, shining the spotlight on the bad guys can, can trigger serious risks for partners in these places where violence is, is endemic and, you know, they can get, things can get very nasty very quickly. So you may want to work behind the scenes, in the corridors of power, under the radar, rather than shouting and thumping and publishing, you know, denunciations. Final one. The system of power and power holders in these places is even more complex often than in more stable settings. You not only have the formal state, but you have hidden power. You have you know, different groups which, have armed, which, which are armed and have the power that comes with violence. 
you have traditional chiefs which may be very influential traditional structures so you really need to understand the power holders and the system of power uh, in order to engage sensibly all great stuff really good summary um, and i think it really matters because over the next 20 years these are the places where a lot of the aid business is going to concentrate if you these are the places where most of the world's extreme poor will be in 20 years' time as other countries grow out of extreme poverty. So if you're a poverty-focused aid agency, you need to learn to work in these places. And I think this kind of work by the A4EA consortium is really helpful. So do read that. And on that note, have a great weekend and talk to you soon. Bye.